You're listening to Recover, a podcast exploring what it means to rediscover something we lost inside ourselves. Whether through addiction, grief, or trauma, we're all connected by the feelings of sometimes losing our way. Let's unlearn what got us here and find ourselves again together. And now your host, founder and facilitator at Invitation Wellness, Sierra Frost. You're listening to Recover. I'm Sierra Frost. And during this episode, we have the brilliant Jessica Hansen with us. Thanks for being here today, Jessica. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So I sort of met you online watching a video of you speaking about your story of recovery and really um, grief. Can you talk to us a little bit about when you hear the word recovery, how you relate that concept to your story or that part of your life? Well, I think that I have, I've spent a lot of the last three years of my life trudging through this like war zone of uh, survival. And so, so when I, when I hear recovery and especially specifically recovery from a traumatic experience, I think of survival. And was it what is it going to take to get me through this? Uh, it's it's brutal. The the, re, the recovery aspect of like what I've done for the last three years has been has been a war zone. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it. And I know just that that reminded me of the idea of PTSD and that PTSD came originally from the word shell shock and the idea of veterans coming back from war zones and having to then learn how to live life in a space that was not a war zone anymore. And so sometimes when we hear PTSD, we think of just that. But this is a really good opportunity to clarify that for every veteran that comes back from a war zone, there's 10 adults in our country that have PTSD from childhood abuse. And then there's other stories and situations like yours, for example, that people go through these healing journeys from trauma. And I'm not trying to infer that you have PTSD. That's for you to decide, I think. But it's important to remember that we all have different situations that feel like war zones. Can you describe a little bit more about what the war zone looked like for you? Well, I think initially it, I mean, it was gruesome. Initially it did start with that um, soldier-esque situation that would entice feeling like it is a war zone, and it just felt like it didn't end. Um, I woke up the morning of March 31st of 2016 to the screams of my uh, my son Mason's dad uh, that there had been a horrible accident. And I came I came downstairs to see that my, my child had been ran over. Uh, his, his face was com- completely gone. And I proceeded to try to save his life, uh, knowing in my in my adult healthcare professional competent brain that there was no way 
that anybody could save someone who looked like that. But I tried anyways. And, and so my the initiation of the war zone was certainly waking up at 9.42 in the morning and getting slapped in the face with my son's, uh, the image of my son being ran over. And uh, it, it just continued. I remember talking to one of my friends about this, and it was just like, you know, I feel like it's a battlefield when I go to the grocery store. And she was like, well, it's, what do you mean? Explain that to me. And I said, I, <laughs> I can't even walk into the grocery store without somebody asking me how I'm doing or someone I know seeing me. And, and I just wanted to, like, curl up and hide from everything. I just couldn't fathom the idea of living this mundane life, like the, the day-to-day, you know, you have to go get gas and go to the grocery store and, and go to work. I, that was hard. That was going back into the real world with real people that have what they feel is real issues and trying to just even stand up in that environment was a war zone in itself. And I, I know it sounds kind of like kind of silly, like how can you go to the grocery store and think that that's, that's hard? Well, it's when you, when you can't even take a deep breath because it hurts so bad, it's hard for you to walk into a grocery store. Yeah, I think that for many of our listeners going to a grocery store, having a similar experience to you or not, that that can be very difficult. And when we're talking about grief or mental health or all of these different experiences that we recover from as human beings, human beings with human brains and human bodies, the part of the definition of these things is that it makes it not possible to always interact with daily life, whether that's mailing a letter or going to the grocery store or showing up for your kids or even feeding yourself or taking a shower sometimes literally Uh feels impossible. And so what you're saying makes complete sense that it would be extremely difficult. And especially when you're running into things that are reminding you of the trauma, people asking you how you are, were there other things afterwards that felt impossible that kind of went from like everyday living that maybe you didn't think about, it just kind of happened, and then suddenly they were reminders or they just felt really debilitating to do? Well, going back to work <laughs> for me was uh, almost paralyzing. I So I work in the facility that I brought my son in to die. And I, you know, I go down to that space a lot. And I had to seriously do some work on even entering the building. Like, I think that, I think that we sometimes forget as a society, like how hard it is for, for, for people to just live. We don't know what anyone's going through. And I uh, took four months off of work after he died. And in that four months, I would go and I would sit in front of the emergency department and just sit there and and just have to, like, I kept playing over and over in my head. Like, this is where we pulled the car up. This is where I got out of the car when I was barefoot, running with my dead child's body in my hand. This is where I went through the door. This is where I did this. And I, I literally had to sit there, I would say, for collectively probably eight hours 
of sitting and just letting myself be. Uh, and then it went from doing that day, day in and day out. You know, maybe I'd only be able to do 15 minutes. Maybe I could do 30 minutes. Then I would walk into the building, get into the waiting room. And then I would walk in past the doors. And then I would walk into Trauma Bay 3. And then I would sit on the gurney in Trauma Bay 3. Like, this progression of even walking into the building of where my son was pronounced dead was excruciating. But I'm a nurse. I Like, that is who I am at the core of who I am. I have to do this. I have to work with people. I have to help people heal. That's me. That's not just my job. That's, like, part of my DNA. And just to transition from who I was and who I am and introducing myself back into the who I was realm was hard. So I really had to find find essentially a new me. Like I couldn't I couldn't possibly be the old Jessica anymore. I had I had to be the new and improved, more emotionally competent, prepared Jessica. Yeah, that makes sense. I I applaud your bravery for doing that. I know for a lot of us we avoid the things that trigger those types of memories for a long time or perhaps forever. And, you know, don't go back to those places or don't talk to the people who are part of it or never drive the same direction or whatever the trigger okay. is that that feels so scary for us. So I really think that you are actually extremely brave for doing that. And one brilliant strategy that you had was to really take things one step at a time, the way you described first pulling into the parking space. And maybe that was enough for one day and then walking in the door and maybe that was enough for one day and giving yourself permission to take the time to take it one step at a time. Was that activity, if you will, the first thing that you did, like the first step in your process of grieving? Or was there something else that really helped you go sort of from this state of of shock and being shut down into okay, I have to figure out a way to continue to live my life and to continue to be the nurse that I am? Well, I think in, in, in between that time was um, a, essentially a call on being a mom and being uh, a, good, a good mom to my surviving children. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I remember talking to one of the nurses even I think it was even before I left the emergency department on on March 31st, and she said to me, she said, Jess, don't hide your grief from your children. Let them walk this path with you. Mm. And I and I, I was like, well, ex- what? Explain that to me. What do you mean? And she was like, I was nine years old when my brother died, and my parents didn't even tell me that he was dead until I went to the funeral. She said, I never saw my parents cry. They never talked about it. They always act happy. And she's like, let your children walk through this with you because I promise you it will give them the tools they need to heal. And I, I did. I took that and I thought, well, holy shit, who am I to think that I am the only one that is going to feel this pain? 
Mikey and Megan uh, at the time, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And they are going to need the tools to survive from this. And I need to give that to them. And, and so I said, okay, well, how long am I going to live? Well, I'm probably going to live until I'm like, I don't know, 70. And how long am Mikey and Megan going to live? Well, hopefully 100. <laughs> and who's going to live with this pain for longer? It's my children. And so I need to do this, and I need to do it well. So I, um, I actually got out of bed, and I let my children help me plan the funeral. I let them paint the casket. I let them sing at the funeral. I did things that were tactile things that they could heal from, and also just just like being a part of it and and being there. So the first thing that helped me live post death was my children. I I had I had to give them everything that I had to help them learn how to deal. Yeah. That is, that is beautiful. Um, so often I think when a topic of conversation even makes us as adults feel uncomfortable or unsure of what the perfect thing is to say or do as a parent or, or even a a family member or a mentor, we shy away from it. We think that by not talking about drugs and sex and suicide or death, that we are protecting our children. But the truth is, our children know, especially now with technology in the 21st century, our children know all of these things exist. And there's so many of my clients I know that describe this similar situation that when something really, really life-changing and traumatic happened in their childhood, that their family's response was to be silent. And the messages that we send when we're silent is perhaps that it was their fault, perhaps that we are angry about it, perhaps that it's not okay to feel or have emotions, perhaps mm-hmm. that we that other people aren't feeling emotions. And as kids, maybe we think that we are the only ones, um, etc. And so it's it's wonderful to include the entire family in the grieving process. Did that also help you to feel like you were less alone on the journey that maybe you weren't sure what that journey was going to be like, but you knew that your children would, would be there with you and you for them as well. Oh man, I don't, you know, I think it was more of this just like overwhelming responsibility. Hmm. This, uh, like I, 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 what, what I think about is this picture, um, of me, sitting crisscross applesauce and watching my daughter paint this rainbow on the casket. And when I look at this picture of us in this situation, what I see and what I remember feeling is just being completely broken uh, and, and being and feeling 100% responsible for her survival. And so I was like, you know, I can't, be this broken and I need to be better. And so it wasn't, you know, you know what they say when, when you're going through life and and people are like, well, you should probably go exercise. And you say, well, I feel so guilty leaving my kids to exercise. You need to take care of you so you can take care of the kids. And so I realized that I had a lot of work to do, a lot of childhood trauma that I had to deal from a lot of 
marital issues that I had to deal with, and then the death of my beautiful son, Mason. And so it was like this overwhelming responsibility for me to hurry up and figure my stuff out because they were going to be leaning on me forever. Mm. And, and I don't, I think that what oftentimes we do as adults, and I've, I've seen, I've seen people do this is when they sort of, they do, they depend on their kids to like carry them through struggle, to carry them through suffering. And I made it profoundly obvious to my children. I said, you guys, I'm mom. You don't need to ever feel like you have to take care of me because I can take care of me and I can help you take care of you. So you can tell me anything. And I think that that a lot of times kids try to protect you, the adult, by like leaving out some of their feelings. Mm-hmm. For instance, let me give you an example of this. Um, it's always honesty in my house. Like, like we are going to be honest. We are going to love each other. We are going to be kind. So you can tell me whatever, whatever you have on your mind. Let's talk about it. And my daughter, like I said, she was five. Her name's Megan. She's gorgeous. Um, she laughed. She was laughing to me one day. She's like, mommy, remember when Mason died? And she's laughing about this. And I was like, um, yeah, and she's like, God, it was so funny because it looked like he had ketchup all over his face, Mom. And she was like, really laughing. And I froze. I was like, oh shit. Like, this is what I've been telling them the whole time that you can be honest with me. You can tell me what's on your mind. And so I followed my response and I said, yeah. It did kind of look like he had ketchup on his face, didn't it? And she's like, yeah, he was so messy. And I was like, yeah, that would have been a real messy ketchup situation. And she goes, but it wasn't ketchup. And I said, no, honey, it was blood. And she's like, yeah. And then she got a little quiet and kind of teared up. And that was the end of the conversation. I think that if we if we kind of look at healing as like a partnership with our children, I think we might be doing them a disservice. Uh, that hurt my heart so much. I went in the closet and I cried for like 30 minutes. <laughs> and I came out and I was like, all right, I can do this because I'm going to be there for my kids. So I don't know. It's, we're walking through this together, but... I need to be able to have them lean on me. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that story that I also think is really important is that the grieving process is going to look different, not just for different ages, but just for different people, because it's a deeply personal experience and the ability to, step back from your own emotions in that moment is a really amazing skill to have as a mother, as a leader even, and to allow the other person, in this case, your your child, which makes it even more difficult, to have their process is crucial. It's crucial to not send the message that there's a specific way we should feel 
or should grieve to get to wherever is helpful and, and heals us. Isn't that, isn't that interesting though? You really have to, you have to be aware of it. You like, I, I had to have people tell me, Jessica, the kids are going to grieve different. They're going to have these different, these different things. And no one, no one specifically said like laughing about it. I, that shocked me, but Mm -hmm. they're going to, they're going to do things that are going to kind of set you off and, and you're going to have to heal from how they heal. And I was like, no, no, it'll be fine. You know, that was kind of um, immature of me to even think that, but yeah, they, they do, they do, they go through their, their life and and every developmental stage, I can see them redoing. My Mm -hmm. son yesterday um, said to me, uh, out of nowhere, you know, mom, when I think of Mason, I get really sad. So I don't, I don't want to think about him anymore. And, you know, I think the mama bear in me was like, what? You don't want to think about your brother. But the human in me said, yeah, man, I, I hear that Mikey. I hear that when you think about Mason, it just hurts your heart. So why would you think about something that hurts your heart? And I said, but as you grow up and and maybe even tomorrow, when you look at a picture of Mason and when you think of Mason, it's not going to be pain. It's going to be joy and a life well lived. And you're going to remember 660 days that you had with your awesome little brother. So right now, yeah, it sucks to think about him sometimes. But tomorrow it might be different. Mm. It's 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 just interesting the different levels of healing and just like the psychology of it all. What's going on in their in their brain? Definitely, and you know, you said that at one point you thought, "No, this won't happen to me." I think many of us use that as a as a defense mechanism that we protect ourselves by thinking we hear these stories about other people and gosh, they really pull at our hearts and and they're so difficult to stay with, but that will never happen to me personally in my life. And then sometimes it does and you end up in this space and everybody does grieve differently. And sometimes it might even surprise us the emotions that come up within our own bodies and brains as well. And before, when we were talking, you said something about having sort of two choices when we are faced with trauma. The first to feel it all and decide to really work hard and go down that path. And the second would be to decide that we're not going to feel it at all. And I think for you, it sounds like you had this very powerful reason to have to feel everything, which was your kids. You recognized they are going to need to heal from this. They need a parent to be able to support them in healing from this. And if I am not doing it for myself, I cannot give it to my children. Can you talk more about that experience and that idea of the choice of feeling everything or feeling nothing at all? There was 
this moment in my life. On March on March 31st, uh, I was in the back of a police car with Mason. I was doing CPR on him. And at, at this, this second in time, I realized that my son was dead. And I felt this overwhelming rage, this rage that just, it was like my entire body was boiling in anger and just like animalistic, powerful, crazy, crazy rage. And I honestly think that that is the first time since I was four years old that I've really felt. And that was the start of feeling all of my feelings. I didn't shut it out. And I, I, I actually wrote this blog about the first day of my life. And the first day of my life being when I woke up. And, and you, you briefly spoke earlier on when we go through trauma as a child, we watch the adults in our life deal with it. And they, they're silent. They don't talk about it. They don't think about it. They don't look at it. They kind of just like ignore that anything bad has ever happened. And so I did that. And I watched adults in my life through to just, you know, just some stuff in my childhood, my parents' divorce, you know, all these, all these things that have unfolded. I've watched everyone just kind of shut it out. And so what did I do in turn? Well, I hid the real Jessica deep down inside of me. And I did not let her come out because you can't let yourself feel pain. You can't let yourself feel joy. You can't, you can't let yourself feel anything until that moment, until that moment where it was just like this awakening of now all of a sudden, all of my feelings are on my skin. I can't, I can't hide them. They are there and everybody can see them. And so I decided, uh, after that moment, to just let myself feel, to just let myself, like I, like I say a lot, it's just like let my body and all the cells in my body just take a bath in those emotions. And I do every day. And what it has done for me, it's amazing things. I, <laughs> I have more joy in my life right now than I've ever had. I can't tell you the last time that I have looked at a situation, like just in, just looked at my life and felt contentment, satisfaction, joy, energized. It was, it really was the first day of my life. Oftentimes I will use the phrase, the gifts of trauma. And one of those gifts is when we are stopping ourselves from feeling emotion. Most of us learn that at such a young age that we aren't even conscious of it. It's just something that we are doing. It's a behavioral pattern and habit, and we don't know what we don't know. Right. And the only thing that really gets us to the point of realizing that is to have such deep pain that we can no longer ignore it. And when I say that, I think it triggers us to feel not just sad, but like you said, rage, 
or shame or emotions that are very, very painful. Painful enough that as I'm speaking right now, even, I can feel my throat want to close up. Me too. And I can, I, yeah. (laughs) I can feel yeah, my body right want to melt down into my chair and hide from myself, from the the words that yep. are coming out of my own mouth. And I, I really want to invite everyone listening today to, to share this podcast and to open up a dialogue with your friends, with your coworkers, with your kids, with your family members, with your church groups about emotions that we think of as negative Because the truth is emotions are neutral. They are messages. They are part of our body system that tells us we're feeling something. And that feeling tells us to behave a certain way. We have a pattern of when we feel happy, we have a certain posture. When we feel sad, we have a certain posture. We might crave a certain food. We might do a certain activity. We all have these like step one, step two, step three that is launched by the emotions that we're feeling. And the other thing that's true about emotions is we can't decide to pick and choose them. If I choose to numb my suffering and my rage, Mm -hmm. I also choose to numb my joy and my love and my feelings of peace. And I want to give permission, as you are right now with this story, for everyone to be able to look into having the skills to feel. You have a talk called Permission to Feel about this piece of your recovery and of your journey of grief. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What was that like in the following days or even moments of being in the back of that police car and realizing, holy shit, I have really been suppressing these feelings my entire life and right now I can't anymore this this is deep enough for me that I have no choice but to be authentic from this point forward right well I think so the the permission to feel a movement I guess you could say that I'm I'm trying to help healthcare providers do is more about when, gosh, you, you've touched on it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a couple of things. One, we don't want to feel these emotions. So as you, as you can imagine, um, when I went back to work, I would be walking down the hallway, and I would try to make eye contact with people, and everybody knows me. It's a small hospital. <laughs> you know, I would try to make eye contact, and literally, no one wanted to do it. Mm. And I was shocked by this, saddened by this, but I understood. I was like, hell yeah, man. I get why you don't want to make eye contact with me. Because if you make eye contact with me and you really, really look at me, you know that I am suffering. And then you have to think about you suffering. And you don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that. I didn't used to until it slapped me in the face. So it kind of, this permission to feel thing came came about in a lot of different ways. It was seeing how people reacted to me in the hallway when I came back to work. It was being in Trauma Bay 3, surrounded by tons of healthcare professionals that all wept when Nathan was pronounced dead. And then it was going and doing continuing education for my nursing career and 
hearing people talk about death and dying, and it just seemed like they had it all wrong. People would say things like, oh, no, 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 I don't cry in front of my patient's family. Mm-mm, nope. Because if I cry in front of the family, that's going to be taking away from their grief. And I was like, wait, no, no, you're, no, but you're wrong. You're wrong because when I was with 70 members of the healthcare profession in Trauma Bay 3, and there was this utter, beautiful, brutal silence at the time of death, and all I could hear was weeping. That didn't take away from my grief. What that did is it validated my feelings. It allowed me to realize that my son's death is sad. So let us feel this together. And so this has been just this, like, um, I, I honestly, I don't have an option. I have to talk about this. I have to teach about this because I think that this is probably what my path was meant to be. I have no choice. Um, but there's just been this accumulation of things, events, building a foundation for me to say, enough is enough. I have to make a difference. I have to tell healthcare professionals that we should feel. We should allow ourselves to cry with that mother who has stage four pancreatic cancer and her four kids are watching her die. Let yourself feel that. My goodness, we got into the healthcare profession because we genuinely care about human beings. So why do we all of a sudden shut off our, our emotions and our caring when somebody's dying? Nope. Mm-mm. It's profound to be there for somebody in those moments. It's, it's beautiful if you allow yourself to see it. And so really it's just been this, realization uh, that I can't I can't go on living the life that I've lived uh, and I don't really want to see other people doing it either I, I want to help I want to help us be better I really appreciate that and working in the healthcare system in a psychiatric hospital I would see similar things that people coming in feeling suicidal or there was a moment once of a man who had been in psychosis for at least the majority of the morning. I don't know about the days before that, but I was running a a group with a nurse and we were talking about healing from anger. And a moment, I was bringing up the concept of self-compassion and sort of leading people, patients into that space. And suddenly he spoke up in a very lucid way. He was no longer in psychosis. And the pain of an experience that he was saying led him to tell us, it hurts so bad to think about this that I literally feel like I'm going to die. And the nurse in the room at that moment got up and walked away. And it hurt my heart to see that happen. And I stayed with him and I said, what is the emotion that you're feeling? And he said, guilt. And he said, he said guilt. He said guilt. And I think he may, he may have meant shame, guilt being I did something wrong, shame being I am something wrong. Yeah. Or both. Um, But at that moment, I thought, 
for the first time that I have interacted with this patient, he is showing us who he is. And the message that that nurse at that moment gave to him was to walk away, that it didn't matter or it wasn't important or he wasn't worth the attention or the time or whatever. And who knows why she walked away? Maybe it was not because of that, but it was very poor timing (laughs) if it was for something else. And so I've seen these types of situations time and time again. And I think to kind of circle back to what we were talking about, what we teach our children, we also teach adults that we all still have human brains and human bodies. And so if we start to open up and someone immediately changes the subject or leaves the room and abandons us, we still receive the message that what we're talking about isn't okay, that it's not important, that we shouldn't be feeling the way that we are. All of these messages are Mm -hmm. still there. We're just in bigger bodies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, and I, I have a lot of, like, really ridiculously silly and deep thoughts now in my life, and I was thinking, I was like, you know, you know that pair of pants that you had, and, and you just love this pair of pants, and you put the pair of pants on every single chance you get, and and you think you are just something else in these pants, and you think you're really doing it right, and somebody says to you one time, those pants look silly you're never going to wear those pants again. You know, as a woman, you're just not going to wear those pants again because somebody (laughs) says they look silly. And you think about the death experience and me being an 18-year-old EMT coding uh, coding a woman for the first time. And I get to the end of the code and I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And I can tell by my, my preceptor, says to me, hey, do you need to take a moment or something? Because you're looking a little off. And I was like, well, I think think I'm going to cry. And she goes, yep, get out of here. Go. That's it. Hmm. That's the pair of pants shaming. That's the the shaming after death. You think as an 18-year-old EMT, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, no, I think I should feel my feelings in these moments. I'm going to say, nope, you're right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was funny because, and it's just all it takes is one. All it takes is somebody to say to you one time. And the more profound the situation, such as death and dying, the more those words are going to sink into your soul and you're going to think that you have to do it a specific way. So when I, when I teach people this permission to feel curriculum, I'm having to unteach what they learned, not didactically. They didn't learn, they didn't learn in a book that you um, should not cry and you should shut it down. But when you get on the job and somebody tells you, uh-uh, go, <laughs> take a minute, what is that saying to you? Yeah, so I don't know. I think that we have been taught all, I mean, literally all our life, that we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing Definitely. It's funny that you brought up the pair of pants metaphor because that actually happened to me (laughs) in fourth grade. (laughs) I had a teacher and I was wearing these like patchwork, pretty wild patterned pants. And she looked at me and she said, I wish I had the guts to wear something like that. 
And she meant it. I know she meant it as a positive way. She was trying to compliment my pants. But the message I received from that communication was people are looking at me. People are judging me. If I have to have Mm -hmm. guts to wear these pants, then there's something wrong with them. I'm different than everybody else. I never wore the pair of pants again. And I was much less likely to talk to that teacher about anything that was important to me because I felt extremely judged. And to this day, I still remember that experience. And well, and you probably will never buy a pair of pants that are as flamboyant ever again. You know what I mean? Like this, is, we are taught at such a young age to like if if we have a criticism, and especially a criticism from somebody who is empowered like a teacher, a priest, uh, a preceptor, you know, those people that you look up to, why why would you do that thing again? It's human nature to be like, oh, I got to shut that down. Oh, gosh, I can't feel it. Right. And, and, you know, you, you bring up the, the power structure, absolutely. And we look up to people in the healthcare system as – as people of power because they are knowledgeable because we are extremely vulnerable we go to places when we are hurt and we don't know how to change it especially things like EMTs or paramedics or um emergency rooms where it's a literal crisis and our only hope is the people who are caring for us and or our loved ones and so the responses are really role modeling what we are supposed, quote unquote, supposed to feel and to do and to respond. And so when all of the personnel leave the room, when your son is announced dead, what does that say to your grieving process? Um, and yeah, I think that, go ahead. I think that you just hit on a really a big point that I haven't thought about before is is how just innately incompetent we feel in those situations. And I can tell you, I felt pretty incompetent when I brought my son in. Like, I felt like I had no idea. Like, I've never learned anything in my entire life. And here I am. You know, I've done trauma for the last five years. And I still felt like I had no idea what was going on. It was totally just ignorant to everything. I couldn't even imagine. I could not even imagine being a mom who brings a child in that's suffering or even just an asthma attack, you know, and they're not going to die, but still just feeling like you are giving all of the cards to these people. And if they roll their eyes or if they sigh at you, your heart, I mean, it's just shattering. That's a really good point. I like it. Which physiologically makes sense, right? Because you, I really want listeners to stop and think about this and imagine it. Jessica is a person who, from the beginning of her adult life, is trained in trauma, is trained in physical, medical work, taking care of people. She works day in, day out in a hospital. She's in a place where she works day in and day out where she cares for people, where she has a huge knowledge base. And in this moment, she feels completely incompetent. Not to talk about you like you're not right here, but but to really hone in on, on this experience. That's huge. Yeah. And it makes sense because when we are 
in stress, in crisis, in survival, we literally don't have access to our long-term memory, to our logic, to our creativity, to our problem-solving, decision-making skills. We don't have access to those parts of our brain anymore. We are just like, how do I survive? None of the rest of it matters. We cannot access the textbooks in our head, the memories, the work that we do day in and day out any longer. And it's an extremely vulnerable place to be. And so when others are in crisis, we, I believe we truly do, especially if you are in a paid position as a healthcare provider or otherwise an educator, um, a law enforcement, we have to be prepared to, to enter those difficult situations that we know are going to happen. There's no one who works in these fields of education, social work, law enforcement, healthcare, that isn't going to run into these crisis situations, we have to understand that we have power in those situations, that our brains, we can train to continue to work, to continue to have access to to all of the parts of it. But the people who are in crisis do not. Well, I think, I also think you touched on something that is really important to remember is this is not going to happen to me. No one I know, no one in my neighborhood, no one in my town, my state is ever going to have a child that is ran over. Nope. Nope. Oh, that sucks for those people over there. But when this happens to you, it's like this, wait a second, I could be the most brilliant neurosurgeon in the entire world. Uh, And if you tell me somebody I love is dying, I'm not going to believe that. Come on, that stuff doesn't happen to me. So it's like you're in this fight or flight, you're in, you have rage, you're feeling emotions for the first time in your life. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's an incredible human experience that I, I hope most people don't have to go through. But in the chance that they do, I just want to educate people on how to help them deal with it. Definitely. And the truth is the suffering is the only part of the human experience that I can guarantee everyone listening has felt. I can guarantee every person with a human brain and a human body on the planet experiences suffering. I cannot guarantee that they all experience joy or peace or love. And I say that because it turns it into this beautiful piece of this is something that connects us. And whether you experience something like this story of losing a child, or it's something else, you still are experiencing a journey of recovery. And that's part of why we're having this discussion. And and I want to touch on to and sort of connect into the work that you're doing, Jessica, Secondary or vicarious trauma, compassion, fatigue, these are things that we talk about even more than that, self-care, self-love. We throw out these words and we give lip service to them. Now, I have worked in the education system. I've worked in social services. I've worked in juvenile justice. I haven't worked in law enforcement, but I've worked with law enforcement. I've worked in the healthcare system. And I see this time and time again where we throw out these words, self-care, resilience, compassion, fatigue, 
And we don't do beyond the lip service piece of it. We know that every single person, whether it's the administrative assistant in the lobby or the emergency surgeon in in the room, experience secondary trauma, meaning we're around trauma day in and day out. Yet we're not taking action to do anything about it. And when we see trauma and experience trauma, even in a secondary way, we're still having the same experiences because again, we have the human brain and the human body. So we still feel just like you did when you were talking about being an EMT when you're 18 and saying, I just coded someone for the first time. And I think that I need to cry about it. That's a normal human experience that we aren't teaching people to do. And so what happens is, again, we end up learning how to numb, how to store emotions in our body, which physiologically they get stored in our bodies and they will come up later. I can't tell you exactly when, but they will come up. Whatever, something will be the catalyst and then suddenly all of these emotions will come back and they come back feeling exactly the same way they felt when we stored them. So one thing that I was super excited to have you on the podcast to talk about is the work that you're doing in the healthcare field to sort of combat this cycle of secondary trauma. Um, not only for patients, but also for the healthcare providers themselves. Can you tell us more about um, Project 660 or the Permission to Feel movement and the types of things that you're teaching to these healthcare providers? I'm essentially giving people, and it doesn't have to just be healthcare professionals. I've done um, a lot of just community members in general, just saying like this, this is what death can look like. Um, and I give them, I give them Mason's, Mason's death story. And I give his death story as being the gold standard. Everything that I needed to heal happened in Mason's death story. So I give them the death story through and through. And I say, these are the things that worked. Um, this is why I think they worked. This is what research shows. This is what I think you should do. And if you can help family members orchestrate a death story, if you can orchestrate a death story that looks like Nathan, I believe that you will also be able to heal. And so it's like this, this thing that just is going to work out for all of us. If we orchestrate better death stories, the family will heal better. If we orchestrate better death stories, the healthcare professionals involved will heal better, knowing that they gave that family what they need to set the foundation for healing. Is it still going to be traumatic? Oh, yeah. Is it hard to watch a mother say goodbye to her son? Absolutely. Is your heart going to hurt? Totally. But what can, what can we do is we, we can just give them the tools that they need to go on to take a deep breath the next day. So essentially Project 660 is just about educating people on how to orchestrate better death stories, on how to really feel their emotions, and just let, let that be heard. Beautiful. Can you give listeners an example, perhaps from your experience, of what happens 
when a healthcare provider or anybody um, who is witnessing trauma join in the experience in that way, how you felt or what that was like, what the outcomes were like, whether it was the person at the hospital who told you to allow your children to see you grieve or the moment when Mason was declared dead and other people were weeping or something else. So I didn't ask for permission in Mason's death story. I actually, I did. At one point I said, can I do CPR on him? And so I called onto the gurney, I got on my knees, and I physically did CPR on my son. And and I was like, well, I'm going to do CPR on him because he's mine. And he's my son, and I think I need to do this. And that those were my thoughts during, during doing the CPR. And then after he died, I held him for four hours, and I took a picture of his hand resting on my chest. And I kissed his toes and I kissed his knee and I cut off a piece of his hair and put it in a specimen cup so I could have it forever. These things that I did, I didn't know why I was doing them. There was something innately telling me that I might need to be the person that felt the warmth leave Mason's body. There was something innately telling me that I might need a picture of his hand resting on my chest with blood in my armpit and dirt underneath his fingernails. There was something in me telling me that I needed to stay and let myself see this experience. Now, it's taken a lot of processing after the death. And 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 I thought, oh my goodness, like that was that was everything that I needed. I need. I needed to touch him. I needed to saturate all of my senses with the fact that he was dead because I wasn't going to believe it. I needed to be there. I needed to have that picture. Like all of these things that I did, I needed to do, and I didn't know why. But now through talking through, oh, my goodness, I, I have gotten so many death stories emailed to me and Facebook message to me, and um, just so many people that that want to tell these stories. And it's like I have the golden ticket. I'm like, hey, my name's Jess. I have a dead son, too. Help me understand why your child, your mom, your grandma, your sister's death experience was good, and tell me why it wasn't good. And what I found is that the things that helped me heal from Mason's death also help other people heal from their death experiences. And it's, it's profoundly, profoundly important for us to do these things. So essentially, I'm just educating people and giving them the things that I did, inviting, just invite the family into the room, empower them to make their own decisions, saturate all their senses. Let them know that the death is really true. And I just give them tools to put in their toolbox for a rainy day, for a day when somebody that they know or somebody that they don't know dies, and then they can help 
that family orchestrate a better death story. That that's profoundly beautiful and in in the spirit of all the things that we have been talking about because you can't see me and listeners can't see me I want you to know that I I have been weeping throughout this conversation on and off and it's only because of the water bottle that I have that I am speaking clearly still into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness for water bottles too. <laughs> Um, but I, w- I want to I want to be fully present with you and give you exactly what we're talking about. Um, I think it would be very hypocritical of me to not to not be honest and vulnerable in in my response to having these conversations um, while we're talking about how how to fully be empathetic and present with someone who is sharing. And I, I want to ask you. What what does recovery look like for you now? Um, a few years later, down the road, where maybe the the crisis situation or the the biggest sting, if you will, um, has passed just over time. What is it like now? Well, I have worked really, really hard on survival. Uh, and now I'm turning it into survival. Um, I look at my life as if I only have 660 days left. That's how many days Mason was alive. And I'm trying to live my life like, you know, I just don't have that much time, so I gotta live well. I gotta be kind. I gotta be genuine. I gotta be present. I gotta let myself really be seen. I have to be able to see other people. Um, so that's my sort of theory on my life. This is how I will live my life. This is what I will do. But I split a lot. This is this is not easy to to you know not not truly care about the mundane. To not kind of get mad when somebody puts whole milk in your soy milk latte. <laughs> you know <laughs> these silly things in life that you're like. Why am I so upset about this? Like, this is crazy. No one's dead. No one's dying. I'm fine. Um, So I have to continually remind myself that this life needs to be lived differently. Uh, Honestly, I'm a yoga instructor now. I volunteer a significant amount of my time to an organization here that takes surgical trips to Haiti. And I, I organize all the trips. I go on a lot of the trips. Uh, I give of myself um, to help other people. Uh, I am almost masochistic sometimes in my... <laughs> uh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but it's true. Because I, I exercise vigorously. Like, I, I need to push myself physically very hard sometimes. Um, so I can let myself really be present. And, and let me just give you an example of this. I, after Mason died, I was really, really mad. And I, I, you know, it was the first time that I felt this and I was just like this rage. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to go run the Grand Canyon and I'm going to keep running the Grand Canyon, uh, until I am so physically exhausted. I can't be mad anymore. 
I just have to be exactly who I am. And I would always get to this point in my run where I would just break down. And it was like this, it was ugly crying and like the dropping to your knees and screaming and just letting yourself let it all go. And initially those were the steps that I needed to take. Those were the, to recover, I needed, I needed to go beat myself up in the Grand Canyon. I ran that canyon so many times, I honestly don't even know how many. Um, But now, if I find myself sort of slipping into this like shell, hiding everything, not letting myself feel, I have to just go do yoga. I have to just go on a normal run. Um, Recovery now is a lot more gentle and a lot less masochistic than it used to be. (laughs) It's sort of just like letting myself, reminding myself that I need to get back into my body and I need to kind of reset what I've been doing. Um, it's still working. It's not easy, but it's working. That makes so much sense. Um, the connecting the physical body to it and, and that sometimes it does, it it takes expression in the form of movement to work through trauma for so many different ways that we won't get into today because there's not enough time. Um, but I, but I do relate to your story and a lot of my clients as well. I teach yoga for recovery and I used to run marathons, lots and lots and lots of marathons specifically when I was going through a recovery process of my own. And so I definitely appreciate the running until you get through the rage and you can finally Uh kind of settle and by settle, I mean, collapse into what else is there. And that discovery process is, is quite beautiful. Jessica. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, but it's good. I mean, it worked. It worked. It served its purpose. And I can't tell you that I don't still run and I don't still run harder than, um, harder than I used to. Cause I do, I, I still go out there and I beat myself up and, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's it's interesting to kind of think about I can't cause myself nearly as much physical pain as I felt emotionally yeah. and and so there's like this this new resilience this new it's just like this new level of being a human it's just on a on a different level you have practiced being so uncomfortable that the things that come up that cause discomfort like the whole milk in your soy milk latte suddenly you remember, oh, wait, I've been through way worse. I can do this. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah, I've been running for 20 miles, but I've, I've been through way worse. I can keep running, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It really is. It's something, it's just this level of who I am that I never knew existed. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I also... Throughout these experiences, your work abroad, your work with others who are in the grieving process, it's really a beautiful way of honoring the 660 days that Mason was alive and the way that he died. And it it almost gives a purpose to that. But I don't want to speak for you. I want to ask you, does that feel true for you? Or can you elaborate on 
that idea? Well, so the reason that I went to Haiti the first time, uh, gosh, that was a very short nine months after Mason died. And I, I remember speaking with Dr. Durham, who is the physician that has done a lot of the work in Flagstaff and trips to Haiti and stuff. And, he, and he's like, listen, Jess, I think, he's like, I think this would be good for you. Uh, I think that, I think it might be good to help you with, you know, maybe perspective. I, I don't know. Just think about it. Come. I will help get you there. Come. And I was like, oh, all right. And so selfishly, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to go to Haiti and I am going to see what real suffering looks like. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go there and I'm going to see that they have suffered way more than I have. And I'm going to stop feeling sorry for myself. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step myself into just being back to me. And when I went there, uh, a 22-year-old man was killed. And I listened to his mother scream. Um, the, the same screaming that I did when Mason died. And I remember being connected to her on a different level, on a level of like, oh my God, who am I to think that your suffering is worse than mine or mine is worse than yours? You can live in a mansion on top of the most beautiful mountain in the world, or you can live in a cardboard box on the streets of Haiti. And if you have a dead child, it's going to hurt. And so I had a lot of healing to do from that trip. I had a lot of self-realization to do from that trip. And I've kind of awakened again and again and again and again. Um, and now I do it because I genuinely love the Haitians. I genuinely love how incredibly strong they are. Um, I go there because it's like a second family at the hospital. I get to see all my friends and help work on people. So the collateral beauty from Mason's death is ever blossoming. I just had a baby girl uh, five months ago and, uh, She's a total accident. Uh, my boyfriend and I met in Haiti, and he uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a surgical nurse. We started dating, and we accidentally got pregnant. Well, we found out we were pregnant on March 31st, exactly two years after Mason's death. Two years to the day after Mason's death. Well, there's no way that I ever would have met Chris if I didn't have Mason. There's no way I would have ever gone on a mission trip if it wasn't for Mason. There's no way I would have ever had this baby. Like there's so many beautiful, beautiful things that have come from Mason and so many times I have just sat and said thank you to him. Hmm. Thank you for being the best teacher I've ever had in my life. Thank you for changing every single thing that I am in the six hundred and sixty days of your life. He was amazing. And he has given me so many, so many gifts. That's amazing. So, so many 
pieces of, of your story are, are so beautiful and, you know, the gifts of trauma, more and more gifts of trauma, um, and, and gifts of Mason. And I, I love that I have the opportunity to get to know him right now. I feel honored to do that. And I feel glad and grateful for his life and for the work and the, the types of connections that are happening now because he lived. What would you say? Hey. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go what would you say to someone who might be listening right now that's relating to any part of your experience, maybe at the beginning of the journey or just doesn't know where to go or what to do yet? Well, I oftentimes say to people that you cannot become the best version of yourself without being uncomfortable. You can't become who you are truly meant to be without suffering. And so if you're in the dark, if you're struggling to breathe, if you feel like you can't eat, just know that on the other side of this, you will get there. That this is truly making you exactly who you were meant to be. So grab onto this opportunity to change. I think that Mason was sent here to awaken me. I think that he was sent here to say, you know what? Mama, you're not doing it right. Wake up. Live your life. And I took every opportunity that I had to live my life fierce, fiercely with passion and purpose. I aggressively pursue living life to the fullest potential. So if you're in the thick of it, first of all, let yourself feel that pain. And let yourself drop to your knees and cry and scream and yell. Feel it. But know that it will get better. Amazing. And, and I, I want to touch on something else you mentioned when you went to Haiti and you thought I'm going to go meet people who have experienced actual suffering as if yours was fake or not, mm-hmm. not good enough. Right. And so many of us who experience trauma end up in that space of well, so-and-so has it worse off or these other people in this other part of the world have it worse off And it doesn't really matter. That's not the point. The point is we all are experiencing this grief in similar ways. And the point is that we, we connect and we're not alone. It's not better or worse or right or wrong or should or should not. It's we're together. Yeah. You know, and, in your suffering, and that's, honestly, a lot of people have said that to me, like, like, oh, I'm feeling so destroyed because my mom died, but that's nothing compared to what you went through, and I'm like, gosh dang it, no, stop, you are suffering. 
grandma, your dog, if they're dead, that's sad. And that's the thing that I have to continually remind people, like especially in the healthcare profession, like you guys, this no nobody's pain is bigger or less or you know more profound than somebody else's. At one point in somebody's career, in one point in your career, you are going to be taking care of the love of someone's life, and they are going to die. And who are we to say that the love of someone's life is not their uncle, their grandma, their mom, their dad, their child, their dog? Suffering is suffering, and pain is pain. Let yourself feel it. Let yourself feel it, because if you feel it, on the other side of that, you can feel joy. What a perfect message to give to anybody out there that is listening. And again, if you are thinking of somebody that might need to hear that message specifically, tell them, share this, just write down the words. Jessica, how can listeners learn more about Project 660 or your work um, with training or medical professionals who might want to go to Haiti, all of these different things, how can they connect or follow the work that you're doing in the world? Well, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Project 660, uh, or you could look me up on the web, www.project660.com. Just reach out. You can find me. My name's Jessica Ann Hansen. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of easy to find now that I had that. There was a video on the, you, you watched it, The Permission to Feel. And uh, since then, I think I've been a little bit easier to find. So find me. Have me come out and speak with your facility. It, I'll, I'll go anywhere. I was just invited to Brazil, actually. And so I think I'm going to be going to Brazil and teaching them about permission to feel. Congratulations. That's amazing. I'm so excited for the world to have you in it spreading this message. And I personally am extremely grateful to be doing this work with you and giving people permission to feel, to be humans and to connect in those ways. Thank you so much for being brave and vulnerable for taking the time to share your story and your wisdom with our listeners on our podcast today. I'm super, super Want excited. Want to learn more about overcoming adversity and embracing the full expression of yourself? Visit speakwithsierra.com and book a complimentary introductory session with Sierra today.